0: welcome everybody. Thank you very much for coming here on a Friday evening. My name is Paul Dolan. I am a professor at the LSE and head of the Department of Psychological and Behavioural Science and also the director of the Behavioural Science Hub and it's the hub that's put in on this event this evening. Um, So thank us very much for that. Um, (laughs) Yeah, 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 actually someone went to clap. Um, Don't. Not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. Save the applause. Yeah, thank you, LSE. Um, <laughs> to my left and the speaker and the main event for this evening is someone called Jonathan Height. I wound him up earlier and said I would say hate. Um, oh, I just did. Um, Jonathan Haidt. Um I'm the one with the white specs. He's the one with the white hair. Um, uh, yeah, I know. I know. I know. I know. I know, that that was a joke. Um, um, So John is a social and cultural psychologist. I'm just going to read out what's on there. And the Thomas Cooley Prof of Ethical Leadership at NYU, Stern School of Business, and author of The Righteous Mind and the Happiness Hypothesis. I noticed that in the slides there, both of us have happiness in the title, so um, we expect to bring a bit of misery to your lives this evening. So um, without further ado, I will hand over to John. John has promised me that he will talk for about two hours, um, that he will... We make it free. <laughs> you don't mean that. Um, <laughs> this, will be, this will be an evening in three parts. John will give his talk. Um, we will have a bit of a Q&A. And then they'll be open to questions at the end. And whilst I remember, because I've been told by about ten people not to forget this, including John, his book is available on sale outside, signed copies from the man himself. So without further ado, John, over to you. Thank you very much for coming this evening.
1: Well, uh, thank you so much, Paul. It's customary to thank the introducer for that warm introduction. But actually, that was like a warm-up act. Like, we, re- you know, this is... Every, every academic speaker should have a warm-up act to get the audience, like, laughing. It, it, you know, we both study positive psychology. We know how good it is. You're going to like me more, and you're going to believe me more because of Paul's laughing. <laughs> Um, Now, uh, how many of you are born in 1995 or later? Raise your hand high. Okay, great, a lot of you. So you have to... So my talk is going to be... Um, about some strange things happening in the United States, a generational divide. It appears that the trends are happening here not quite as much, but you keep me honest or you weigh in on it. It, it, These things may not be at LSE as much as at other schools. This is something we're all trying to figure out. Things are changing fast. There's some effects that I think are fairly bad for for your generation. Gen Z is is what it's uh, commonly known as. So let's jump right in. Um, This is my title, uh, and I'll just... Begin by talking about, so the whole talk is about um, this this new moral culture that appeared first on university campuses in the United States, but now it seems to be spreading internationally and down to other age groups and out into the corporate world. Um, But let's start with universities. It makes a lot of sense to to start by talking about what's the purpose of any institution. If you understand the purpose of it, then you can make judgments about whether the norms are appropriate for the purpose. So the concept of a, tel- a telos... The Greek word, you know, Aristotle used it a lot. Uh, what is the purpose or telos of something? So the purpose of a knife is to cut. And so if I show you a knife and I say, here's a knife, it's, it's a really great knife. It doesn't cut anything, but it's a really great knife. You'd say, well, no, wait, you've you misunderstood what a knife is. And if I say she's a really great doctor, she never heals anyone, but she's great. You would say, no, no, you've misunderstood what a doctor is. And this is an amazing university. It's, it's just great. You're going to love it. It never what? What would it be that it doesn't do where you'd say, wait, you've misunderstood what a university is? Um, we have a conception of ourselves in universities as being the heirs of Plato and Aristotle and the academy. And here you see a bunch of people engaged in some sort of activity. What are they doing? Are they fighting? Are they playing? Neither. They're disputing. They're presenting a case and having that case be challenged. They're arguing. What is the purpose that they're doing this for? The purpose, we put it on the crests of our top universities, is truth. The telos of a university, at least there are many kinds, but the dominant conception for our top universities, and for all, I believe, is something about truth, light, uh, wisdom, knowledge. um, Here at LSE... It's uh, Rerum Causas Cognosere. I don't speak Latin, but Google told me that that means that that the causes of things be known. So again, about knowledge, figuring out how the world works. That's why we have universities. Now, uh, I taught for 16 years at the University of Virginia, a wonderful university founded by Thomas Jefferson, who wrote about it. He said, for here we are not afraid to follow truth, wherever it may lead, nor tolerate any error, so long as reason is left free to combat it. My story is about Things that began happening in 2014 or so on American universities where suddenly there was a lot more fear. Um, People started asking for trigger warnings. Uh, Newspapers started writing about this strange new trend of students asking for trigger warnings on great works of literature. Uh, Some students began asking for or creating safe spaces. If a visiting speaker was coming that they strongly disagreed with, they didn't just not go to the talk, they needed a space that was safe. So my friend and (coughs) co-author, Greg Lukianoff, is the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. They argue for free speech rights for students on college campuses in the United States. And Greg is prone to depression. He had a suicidal depression. He very nearly killed himself in 2007. Um, He made plans. He began to buy supplies. uh, But at the last minute, he checked himself into a hospital. And uh, when he was released, he learned cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, In CBT you learn the names of a bunch of distortions, you learn the the, the repetitive things that a depressed person's mind does. Catastrophizing, Uh, dichotomous thinking, uh, mind-reading, labeling, blaming. You learn the names of these common mental distortions, and then you learn to stop doing them. You learn to challenge. You learn to look for evidence, which is basically what critical thinking is. Now, Greg recovers. uh, He goes on working for FIRE, and then suddenly, in the 2013 to 2014 academic year, he begins seeing students asking for trigger warnings, things like that, and the way they justify it is by using exactly the cognitive distortions that he had learned to not use. If this speaker speaks, people will be traumatized. There will be, people will die. So this kind of thinking, this exaggerated thinking, Greg started seeing that in the students. And he came to me um, to say, John, as I'd written a book called The Happiness Hypothesis, I talked about CBT. So John, if students are learning to think this way on college campuses, isn't this going to make them depressed? And I said, yes. That that sounds like it should do that. And so we decided to write up an article. Um, we we uh, got it published in The Atlantic magazine. Uh, we submitted it in January 2015. It came out in August of 2015. At the time, I was charged with looking for evidence that depression was rising among college students, and I couldn't find it. Lots of people were saying it. The heads of counseling centers were saying that, but I couldn't find national survey evidence of a rise in depression. This was in early 2015. So the article comes out, And right after it comes out, then all hell breaks loose on college campuses, beginning especially at Yale. There were protests. There was a guidance over what Halloween costume students should wear. And this started an argument. And uh, there was a famous video of a student cursing out and screaming at a professor. Uh, the, The students then... Um, uh, there's a big march to the president's house. They present the president with a list of demands, an ultimatum. You have seven days to respond to our demands. Um, the president, as any president would, if you give the president a demand, of course he's going to resp- meet it in time, right? So he does meet their demands in time. He gives them as many things as, he, uh, as he's able to, and that's when the protests go national. The students at Yale were successful in getting the president to meet their ultimatum. And so then this idea, these new ideas, spread. Uh, dozens and dozens of schools, this, similar things happen. Originally, the protests uh, are related to to race issues, but they spread out and they become about many, many things. Food can be cultural appropriation if it's not cooked right. Um, Speakers... Um, speakers, uh, of course, you know you guys invented the term no platform, and we borrowed that uh, from you. But uh, but the no platforming sometimes became violent uh, at, at at the University of California at Berkeley, <clears throat> uh, at Middlebury College in Vermont. A professor was attacked. So Charles Murray is going to give a talk. He wrote a book called The Bell Curve that students object to. Okay, they shout him down. The talk is held in a, in a studio when he and his partner, a professor of political science, are leaving the building. Students attack them, and she gets a concussion and neck damage that may be permanent. At Reed College in, in Oregon, <clears throat> um, students bring their protests of a Western civilization class into class for a year. Every day, they're there protesting inside the classroom. Um, so things like this are beginning to happen with increasing regularity in 2015 through 2017. Shout downs, uh, people uh, The shoutdown usually involves calling the person a fascist, even if they have, there's nothing to do with, with fascism. So the puzzle is, where did this come from almost overnight? It took all of us by surprise. Where did this come from, this set of terms and concepts? Safe spaces, trigger warnings, microaggressions, bias response teams, matrices of oppression, call-out culture. The core phenomena is that students began to think, just as Greg had said, students began to think that they themselves are fragile and they live in a dangerous or hostile world and university. Even at the most progressive, physically safe universities in the country, the idea is they are in danger and they need protection and the deans and professors and president of the university need to give them these protections. So that's what our book is about. Where did this come from and what effects is it likely to have? The book was great fun to write. I'm a social psychologist, but I love all of the social sciences, and I think we need all of the social sciences in order to understand big changes in our society. So we cover actually six different reasons, six different causal threads. Some go back to the 1980s, um, and you need to understand all of these. I'm only going to talk about three tonight because Paul has insisted that we bargain from 30 to 35 minutes. I got 35 minutes, so I, um, but I'll talk about three of them. Uh, And uh, you can read the book for the rest. Um, The book is based on three really, really bad ideas. Ideas so bad that if we can get students to believe it, we will disempower them, weaken them, and basically assure that they will not do much, they will not accomplish much in this world. So if students believe that what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, that you should always trust your feelings, and that life is a battle between good people and evil people, imagine what it would be like to go through life believing those three things. All right, so let's, uh, I'll do the first and the third of them. In the interest of time, I had to cut the second. So my first book, The Happiness Hypothesis, is about ten ancient ideas. And those three truths are the direct negation of three of the chapters. So chapter seven, the uses of adversity. You've all heard what doesn't kill you makes you uh, um, stronger. Um, because people are anti-fragile. Raise your hand if you know what that term means. Is that something you've heard before? Okay, so about 20% of you. All right, so to explain, uh, Nassim Taleb, the guy who wrote The Black Swan, had to coin the term because there is no word in the English language for systems like this. So there are, there are things that are fragile, and if you knock over a glass, it will break, and nothing good happens, so don't knock over a glass. When kids drink something, we give them plastic cups. Sippy, You know, if a toddler is drinking, you give a sippy cup. If, if, if she drops it on the floor, it doesn't break. It's resilient, but it doesn't get better. A cup doesn't get better if you drop it on the floor. And what Taleb was trying to do was describe systems, complex systems, that need to be dropped on the floor multiple times in order to wire themselves up and become resistant to damage so they actually get better when you drop them on the floor. They need adversity. They need challenge. Um, And there's not a lot of things like this in the world, but the things that are like this are very, very important. Bone is the simplest example. Your bones get strong as strong as they need to be given the kinds of shocks that your bones are taking. So if you're weightless for several months in outer space, your bones get weaker because it's not needed. And then if you're pounding on them, they get stronger. A more complicated example is the immune system. This is the best example. Um, peanut allergies are rising uh, in, our, in our con- both of our countries. Why? Why have peanut allergy rates tripled in the United States uh, since the 1990s? Well, it turns out they're only increasing in countries that tell pregnant women to avoid peanuts. And so some allergists and immunologists thought they would do a controlled experiment. They recruited, um, they recruited um, 640 women who had recently given birth, and their, their infants were at higher risk of peanut allergy because they had some other allergic issue. So, um, so this is a population in which we might get enough data to be able to see what happens. And half of them were given the standard advice. Your kid is at risk for peanut allergy, so keep peanuts away. Um... Actually, I think they, uh, yeah, so keep, keep away from peanuts, just follow the standard advice. Um, the experimental group was given uh, a supply of an Israeli snack food. It's a puffed corn thing with peanut dust on it. And so even a three-month-old can enjoy eating that sort of thing. So give, it, give this to your kids, even though they're at risk for peanut allergies. Now, of course, they monitored them. They didn't just say, go stuff your kid with peanuts, <laughs> and if he survives, come back and tell us. Um But then they measured at age five, they did a full assay to to discover what's the immune reaction to peanuts. And what they found is that in the control control group, when the kids were kept away from peanuts, 14% of them developed a peanut allergy. So for the rest of their lives, they're going to have to watch out for peanut butter, peanut products, be careful on planes for the rest of their lives. Whereas those who were given peanut powder early, 2% we could essentially wipe out peanut allergies by giving peanut powder to kids. The authors of the study said at the bottom there, our findings suggest that this standard advice to avoid peanuts was incorrect and may have contributed to the rise in peanut and other food allergies. This is what we mean with our subtitle, how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. All right, let's try that again. Let's take the whole kid and let's keep the whole kid safe, all right? Kids are really fragile. When you have one, you can't believe this thing is going to survive through the night. Somehow they do, but you want to protect them anyway. It's a natural urge. But once you protect them, you have to kind of keep protecting them because, you know, I mean, how is he, what, what if, how is he going to know how to cross the street? I have to be with him. And again, and again, and again. And if you are always there to meet their needs, then they always need you. And that happens all the way through college. In the United States now, it's increasingly common for parents to accompany their college graduates on job interviews and to complain, and to complain to the person who didn't hire them that their kid should have been hired. It's not that this is happening a lot, but everyone who recruits a lot has heard stories like this. It is happening. Um, now, what do I think we should do instead? Okay, not this. This is an old-fashioned playground. <laughs> kids, so ki- kids could actually die, okay? That, okay, that's, that's not peanut dust. That's like a pound of peanuts, okay? So that, that's not good. Um, but this, I think, is good, because on this playground, a kid is not going to die, but a kid could get hurt. And that's important because then a kid can learn how not to get hurt. Whereas, if you go to any playground in the United States, this is what my kids grow up on, okay? You can't get hurt. Therefore, you can't learn how to not get hurt. Um, There's a thing called risk deprivation syndrome. Kids need risk. When they learn to... Skateboard. They don't just go back and forth. They then skateboard downstairs. Kids are seeking out the risk that they need to master risk and become stronger and more independent. But in America, we've deprived kids of risk systematically and pervasively. As Alison Gopnik, a developmental psychologist at Berkeley, put it, trying to eliminate all such risks from children's lives might be dangerous. There might be a psychological analog to the hygiene hypothesis, analogous to the peanut allergy thing, um, And so she says, in the same way, by shielding children from every possible risk, we may lead them to react with exaggerated fear to situations that aren't risky at all and isolate them from the adult skills that they will one day have to master. Things that aren't risky at all, like a visiting speaker coming to your campus and you don't have to go to the talk. That really is not dangerous. (laughs) The dictum that... The the ancient wisdom or the common folk wisdom is prepare the child for the road not the road for the child. Now in the UK you guys are beginning to get this. You've followed us through most bad trends but some educators in the UK are beginning to realize kids need risk. Small risk, controlled risk and if you think about what this kid is going to learn here's a kid on a British playground where they've put out some construction materials for them to play with and look at this budding young physicist. He has basically he's got a plank here with a brick underneath it, a pile of bricks. He is studying Archimedes and he is going to learn a lesson. In the United States, we do the opposite. We say we protected them all the way up through age 18. Now they're at college. They might get hurt if it snows. So no snowball fights. Someone could get hurt. Now my question for you, and I think I know the answer, but let's try it. Um, I'll, do what, I'll do what I do in the United States, and I bet we're going to get a different result. So at what age were you allowed to leave? What, were let, uh, what age were you let out? Did your parents say, oh, yeah, go ahead, you can walk to your friend's house, or you and your friends can go to a store? Or At what age could you be outside a few blocks from your home with no adult supervision, uh, at least in the United States? So if it if, was is, is the age 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, those are American grade levels, but you figure it out for you. We'll go by age. So everybody think of your number. Roughly, at what age were you let out? And now I'm going to ask just the people over 40. Raise your hand high if you're over 40. Okay. So all of you, just I'm just going to sweep my finger around like this as I point to your ear. Just call it out loud. At what age were you let out? Six. Six. Six.
2: Six. Six. Six.
1: Okay, so almost everybody said five or six, and there were a couple of fours. Okay, nobody, as far as I know, nobody even said seven. Okay, so so British people were let out at five or six for a long time, and that's the exact same as Americans. The exact same result in the United States. Okay, now, just those of you who were, who were born in 1995 or later. Okay, the only only those raise your hand high if you were born 1995 or later. Okay, now just you. What's your number? Let's start again. Just call it out loud. 10, 8. 10, 8, 9. Okay, so that's very different. Okay, very, di- so as you see, it's a little later. There were, it was sort of 6 through 10, okay? The, the younger people at 6 through 10. So you, British people are still let out at age 6, but some were kept in a few years longer. In the United States, it would be 10 through 14. Almost nobody is let out before the age of 10. In fact, if you are caught outside without a parent, your parents can be arrested. It doesn't happen often but it happens often enough that we're all scared out of our minds to let our kids go outside. I do it, but I give my kid a long explanation and a document and my phone number to prepare. So I think the problems we're talking about here are not going to be as severe at, in Britain and on British campuses. Uh, but depending on what you do with your kids, they might, it might change. A very important distinction is that the millennial generation, we all thought that it would end around 1998, 2000, but it turns out that at least in the United States, there's a big cutoff. Kids who were born in 1995 are different from kids who were born just a few years earlier. The slopes of behavior change rather sharply so uh, iGen the internet generation or Gen Z or Gen Z same, same thing um, so Gene Twenge uh, has, a, has a book that shows nationally representative data from the United States that shows that the, the uh, so in the 70s everybody got a driver's license uh, you know when I was a kid you turn 16 you get a driver's license the next day like you would never wait two days to get your driver's license but gradually as, as Gen Z comes into the into the data set it drops off they're not getting driver's licenses as much because they don't really need because they're not going out drinking and driving They're not going out on a date and drinking and driving They're not driving to the job Because they're not working as much What are they doing? They're spending a lot more time at home On their devices This is the big thing that seems to have changed childhood Is getting devices in, uh, around, uh, in their teen years So So um, This is not just a different way of growing up. It is a way of growing up that appears to have devastating effects on girls. We don't know the exact cause of this. We know that the rates of depression and anxiety for girls in the United States are skyrocketing, beginning with those born in 1995. So this shows um, uh, the percent who have had a major depressive episode. Not that they felt blue. They had a major depression. They were largely dysfunctional for some period, um, they answered yes to five out of nine sim- uh, symptoms on a checklist for major depression. In the early to mid 2000s, the rates are stable. Girls always have higher rates of depression and anxiety than boys. The boys' rate, as soon as Gen Z comes into the picture, the boys' rate goes up. That's actually about a 30% increase. But the girls go up from a much higher baseline, they go up 40 per, uh, 40%. So much bigger effect. Or uh, One in five American teenage girls has had a major depression in the last year. College students, uh, back when the data set was all millennials in 2012, again, uh, young women are higher than young men, uh, but it was only 6% said that they had a mental disorder such as depression. Um, but as soon as the millennials leave and iGen gen or Gen Z comes in, The rate goes up for both, but especially for women, it's now about one in six women say that they have a mental disorder. Now, uh, we're talking a lot about this in the United States, about the epidemic of anxiety, uh, but of course there are skeptics, as there should be. Could this just be self-report? Could it just be that young people today, they're so comfortable talking about mental illness, this is a good thing, they're more open. There's nothing to worry about, as one well-known psychiatrist said. Um, But I think that he is incorrect, and here's why. Look at behavioral data. This is not self report. This is the number out of 100,000 American kids who is admitted to a hospital every year for self harm. That is, they cut themselves so badly that they had to be admitted to, they deliberately harmed themselves. Uh, Symptom of anxiety, that they had to be hospitalized. So what happens? It's especially the older, this is just the growth. There's no trend for the boys. For the teenage girls, the age 15 to 19 has the highest rate. Uh, These are the older kids, the 20 to 24. These numbers were fairly stable in the early 2000s. But once we reach this period, 2009, look what happens. The millennials actually don't change. When millennials get iPhones and social media and all those things, it, 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 they got them in college or later, and it doesn't, didn't seem to harm them. But when kids get it in early teen years, again, we're not sure that this is the cause, but this is the leading explanation. When they get it in early teen years, uh, the, the, and again, this is Gen Z, they go way up, and look at this, the youngest girls, these are pre-teens that had very low rates before. Now that they're on social media, uh, Gigantic, 180 percent increase in the in the uh, in, in rates of self harm. Same thing for suicide. Um, as soon as Gen Z comes in, and again, the high use of social media and screens. Uh, the male rate is up 25% for teenage boys, a gigantic increase in just 10 years. The rate for girls is up 70%, percent 70 percent increase just in 10 years. These data were not available in 2015 when we were writing the Atlantic article. It takes a few years from the time something happens to the time it's published as data. So now we know the epidemic, the mental health epidemic, especially for girls, was going on while Greg and I were writing our Atlantic article, but we didn't have the evidence for it yet. Um, suicide for uh, teenage girls is at the highest it's ever been um, and so this is why college students are flooding mental health centers something we're doing is setting them up for failure, we're doing something very wrong for our kids in America what about you, what's going on in the UK when we were writing our article we did look for it, we didn't find any evidence of mental health problems in Britain <clears throat> um, when we were writing our book we began to find evidence of mental health problems but we didn't see, we didn't, it wasn't clear in suicide yet um, here's what I just found preparing for this trip. I, I did some Googling. I found this report from Girl Guiding. And they give stats such as 7- to 10-year-old girls in 2009 in blue compared to 2018. So uh, it's down from 59% were allowed out on the streets with their friends to 47%. And, again, it's like you know, 10 to 15% decrease, 10% decreases um, across the board. I'm looking at these numbers. Are saying, I'm saying, are you kidding me? Any 10-year-old girl, any 7- you know, or 8-year-old girl is allowed outside with, you know, like, wow. Like, in America, it would be zero, or at least it would be, you know, very low. Um, this stat, I thought, was stunning from that study. In 2009, 69% of girls said that they regularly met friends at each other's houses. And just a few years later, it's dropped to 21%. So gir- So boys and girls are not having as much social interaction, physical face-to-face interaction. They're spending less time outside, they're spending more time on their devices, and this may be interfering with their social development. Um, Surveys show a sharp decline in happiness among UK teen girls and women, but especially girls. Um, Now, your suicide rate here has been dropping steadily for men and women for the past 40 years. The graph is just down, 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 down for all males and all females. That's wonderful news um, except for teenagers. Teenage girls are going up. The rate among girls aged 15 to 19 hit record high. Uh, rate among men of all ages in U.K. is falling. Um, here is the data on self-harm, a study published in the British Medical Journal. Uh, the rate for boys is low and has not changed. The rate for girls is exactly like the U.S. It's steady until 2011, 2012, and then it shoots up. So British girls, like American girls... And uh, in preparation for this trip, I was on Irish radio, Irish girls, Canadian girls. It's happening in all of the English-speaking countries. I don't know yet about data in other countries. We've been looking. It should come out in the next year or two. One report, the uh, Royal Society for Public Health, asked teenagers what they think of the social media platforms. And what the kids themselves said is YouTube is a net positive, the others are net negative, and it's especially Instagram. Instagram, the kids themselves say, is bad for them. All right, so that's bad idea number one. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Kids are anti-fragile. We've been over-protecting them and then giving them social media. And the combination, we think, again, we can't be sure about causality yet, but we tell the story in the book to suggest that there probably is causality. Um, In the interest of time, I'll skip this one. But the basic, the truth here is that we're all prone to emotional reasoning and the confirmation bias, as Epictetus, the Stoics, and the Buddhists really got this. It is not things that disturb us but our interpretation of their significance. Okay, I'll have to skip that one. Bad idea number three. This one I think is the most important in our countries as we are each experiencing rapidly rising polarization, division, and anger. Life is a battle between good people and evil people. This is a direct negation of Chapter 4 of the Happiness Hypothesis uh, on the faults of others because the psychological principle that is true is that we are all prone to dichotomous thinking, sort of black and white thinking, good versus evil, and we're all prone to tribalism, us versus them. Now you put these together, what do you get? Um, So there's a wonderful line from Alexander Solzhenitsyn's The Gulag Archipelago where he says, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. We know this is true. This is wisdom. Just you hear it, you know that this is true. uh, it, it's, it's ancient wisdom, it's great wisdom in many traditions. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but you do not notice the log in your own? We all know that we're, that we're hypocrites. <clears throat> um, the logic of tribalism is also uh, crystal clear, captured in this famous Bedouin proverb, uh, I against my brothers, I my brothers against my cousins, I and my brothers and cousins against the world. Uh, What happens on American college campuses is what we call a call-out culture. That is this hyperjudgmentalism, often hypocritical, about us versus them, group versus group, seems to have taken off among American teenagers, especially with Gen Z. So this is a really great description of it, a very succinct description of what it's like on the inside. A young woman at Smith College in Massachusetts Uh, She says, During my first days at Smith, I witnessed countless conversations that consisted of one person telling the other that their opinion was wrong. The word offensive was almost always included. Members of my freshman class quickly assimilated to this new way of non-thinking. They could soon detect a politically incorrect view and call the person out on their mistake. I began to voice my opinion less often, to avoid being berated and judged by a community that claims to represent the free expression of ideas. I learned, along with every other student, to walk on eggshells for fear that I may say something offensive. That is the social norm here. And so when I give this talk, or versions of this talk, at American universities, I always ask the current students, is this true, do you have this here? And the answers range from every hand going up yes to half the hands going up saying, we have it in some classes and places, but not in others. So my question to you, to those who are current students, my question to you is, do you have this? I don't imagine that it's pervasive anywhere, but my my question is, do you uh, you have this in any part of your life, any part of your, uh, let's say your life at school? Does this happen in any of your classes or in some parts of school? So just raise your hand if you are currently a student. Raise your hand if you're currently a student. Okay, so we see how many there are. For all of you, now put your hand down. Just those of you who raised your hand, do you, do you recognize this in your education? Raise your hand high if you do. Okay, about half. And raise your hand high if you don't. Okay, good. So it's about two to one, no. So in this audience, you're not, you have not, most of you have not seen it, but some of you have. And this is the lesson I'm taking away from this week in London. Every single trait, every single new argument, every single innovation, innovation, you might say, that we have on American universities is present in the UK. People have told me about it, but it's not as common. And so the question is, is it just that you're a year or two behind us and the full force of it will hit you in a year or two? Or is it that... You don't, you, you don't overprotect your kids as much. Maybe it's just not going to rise as high here. I hope it's the latter. Um, now, there's a very important idea that we all need to talk about, which is intersectionality. Um, raise your hand high if you know what this is, more or less. All right, so it's quite common. You, most of you are familiar with it, the, the younger people in particular. Um, <clears throat> so just to explain it very, very briefly, it starts with an excellent idea, an idea that has to be true and is valuable, and that is that there are many dimensions of identity, And these identities intersect or interact. So Kimberly Crenshaw has an excellent TED Talk where she points out that to be a black woman in America is not the sum of being black and female. There's an interaction. There are unique indignities, unique problems, unique aspects to being a black woman in America. There are main effects and interaction effects, we would say, in the social sciences, and every social scientist would agree and understand that. So that is certainly right. The problem is that when you teach this on American campuses, the way it ends up being taught is this. Let's take 18-year-olds whose minds evolved for tribalism. We're all evolved to do us versus them. We're very good at it. And let's teach them to see the world, to look around the world, look at people, look at individuals, and see them as occupying a point on many, many different lines. Um, And they're vertical, those on the top have power and privilege, so white is high, non-white is low, heterosexual is high, other sexualities are low, cisgender, et cetera, male, so you see how that works. And these are not just categories, these are moralized categories, that is, the people on the top are bad, they have power and privilege, they use that to repress and oppress the people below, They've set up the system to keep the other people down to maintain their power and privilege. So you take 18-year-olds and you teach them to see people not as individuals, but as members of groups that are good or bad. What do you think happens? Um, You get things like this. A student in Texas writing about white death... Um, ontologically speaking white death will mean liberation for all uh, until then remember this I hate you because you shouldn't exist etc etc now he says he wasn't talking about literally killing all the white people it's cultural death it's that they, they're, as a culture uh, they, they should be wiped out now it's not just students this is the thing we're seeing so in 2015 and 2016 we saw this but now in 2017 and 2018 it's spreading off universities it's becoming part of mainstream culture So uh, the Me Too movement, a very important and necessary movement. But here's a gender studies professor who writes in the Washington Post, why can't we hate men? And she says, we, women, as a group, have every right to hate you, men, as a group. You have done us wrong. Group versus group, locked in eternal struggle for power in a zero-sum game. That's one way of looking at life. Um, Here's a commentator on CNN. We have to stop demonizing people. Yeah, and realize the biggest terror threat in this country is white men. Um, and then the New York Times. The New York Times recently hired a um, a journalist who writes about tech, um, and uh, so she's a, it's a Korean American woman from from Harvard or Harvard Law. And it turns out she had a lot of tweets about things like Dumbass fucking white people marking up the internet With their opinions like dogs pissing on fire hydrants Cancel white people Oh man, it's kind of sick how much joy I get out of being cruel to old white men So there's a lot of these Um, And the question is, is she racist? And for many people, no You can't be racist because what she's saying is punching up It is a good thing to punch up It is a bad thing to punch down so this is a good thing, and as, uh, as uh, Jessica Valenti write, uh, tweets, um, Sarah Jong is good, her haters are bad, it's not difficult. This is exactly the untruth of us versus them. Uh, what should we do instead? Use basic social psychology and common human decency to say... As we do in in the book, we point out, you have to have identity politics. Groups have to have ways of organizing. It makes sense that black students, LGBT, every group should have a way of organizing. But you can either do this from a common enemy point of view, let's all unite against the bad people, which is what is often taught, or you can do it from a common humanity perspective, which is what the great civil rights leaders did in the United States, most of them. So, Pauli e. Murray, an early one, uh, black and, and uh, gay or possibly transgender, we would call her today, uh, woman, writing, I intend to destroy segregation by positive and embracing methods. When my brothers try to draw a circle to exclude me, I shall draw a larger circle to include them. The Dalai Lama says it in a different way I'm Tibetan, I'm Buddhist, and I'm the Dalai Lama. But if I emphasize these differences, it sets me apart and raises barriers with other people. What we need to do is to pay more attention to the ways in which we are the same as other people. I think this is what we should be doing on campus. If we're trying to create tolerant, inclusive, multi-ethnic societies, we should be following the Dalai Lama and Pauli Murray, not standard intersectionality. Fortunately, uh, now that in the United States, now that we have horrible right-wing white racial identity politics, and we're seeing the madness of accelerating identity politics on both sides, finally, and in in a very encouraging trend, a lot of (coughs) non-white scholars and writers are beginning to say, enough, stop the madness, this is not the right way forward. And so we have a whole bunch of books that just appeared in the last year. Amy Chu, a uh, Chinese-American law professor at Yale, Political Tribes, Francis Fukuyama's book, Identity, Anthony Appiah's book, The Lies That Bind, and then a whole bunch of people. And just this week, I found this wonderful group um, all in Britain. Follow it on Twitter. Um, I don't know if it's run by, but Manira Mirza uh, told me about it. So you've got a lot of great new thinking about race and identity here that is common humanity. That rejects the common enemy approach. We have this similar issue. Obviously, our racial situation is different and is is worse in many ways because of our history. um, But a lot of the same dynamics are present in in our two countries. So, imagine building a university. Imagine you are in charge of a university or you're starting a new one. Imagine building a university based on these three untruths. What would it be like to be a student at such a university? What would the dynamics of conversation between people be like? Conversely, imagine your university built on these three truths, these three uh, uh, pieces of wisdom. I think most of us would agree, you'd get a better education, you'd learn more, relationships would be better, it would ultimately be more inclusive if built on the great truths rather than the great untruths. So to conclude, how do we set up iGen or Gen Z for success? for one thing, follow the principle that people are anti-fragile. Um, in the United States, where the problem is bigger, uh, we have the need for free-range kids. Lenore Skenazy wrote this wonderful book. Uh, she and I and a few others started an organization called, um, uh, called Let Grow, which I'll show you in a moment. Uh, but once I read her book, I said, "Oh my God, we're doing things wrong with with our kids." I said to my wife, and we agreed we need to um, uh, begin doing more free range stuff. And so this is my daughter's uh, my daughter's first time crossing the street totally alone. My wife gave her a lunch bag to bring to me at the office. She had to cross uh, one sort of busy street, um, and here she is. Um, <laughs> and the reason I show it is not just because she's cute and I love her, um, but it's because that experience for her. And the praise that I gave her and the thrill, the excitement, burned into her that she's a free-range kid, that she can do it. And so I think this one episode, and then more afterward, but this is how you build up a strong, independent identity, so um, I don't know that you... Well, I think from what I can see, I think you do actually need this in the UK. Um, uh, check out, if you have kids, check out letgrow.org. It's full of suggestions for how to give kids more unsupervised playtime, to give more of a free-range childhood, to build stronger, more resilient, and as we say, future-proof kids, kids who are not going to be made obsolete uh, because they are, just, they are weak and fragile. Um, and so specifically for those of you who have kids, uh, principals or head, head teachers can suggest healthy norms that most parents want. And I'm, I be, I, uh, raise your hand if you're a parent in here. How many parents do we have? Um, especially if parents have kids of kids over the age of eight. Do you, want your, do, you, do you struggle or want your kids to do less screen time? Raise your hand if that's true. Okay, Parents everywhere are facing this this issue. It's hard to keep your kids, especially off social media, because other kids are on it. So uh, it's important to set norms. Kids need unsupervised free play time. Uh, Screen time, we believe, should be limited to two hours a day of leisure time. And no kid should be on social media until the age of 15. If these were established as norms, then the head teacher could do this. Now that it's becoming clear, not certain... But there's enough evidence to suggest that social media is implicated in the rising depression, anxiety, and suicide rates, especially of girls. I think there's enough evidence to begin talking about this and suggesting new norms. Finally, on psychological principle number three, we're all prone to dichotomous thinking and tribalism. What can you do? use uh do this form of identity politics you need to address issues of identity at school at the workplace but start in this way start by emphasizing what you have in common uh don't demonize don't alienate and then you can talk uh now uh, uh, uh and and I think you'll be more effective uh, my colleagues and I created a program at openmindplatform.org to teach skills of discussion across divides. Whenever there's any kind of divide, if everyone has the same set of skills and concepts, they'll be more effective at talking and people will be less likely to get angry and, and escalate. So I'm going to end with something I'm trying in the United States. Um, raise your hand if you f- so. Do you feel here as though you're choking on outrage? That is, there's too much outrage. There's just so much anger, and especially on, on social media, just too much stuff. Raise your hand if you feel... There's just too much outrage around you. Raise your hand high. Okay, and how about those who think there's not enough, that people should be expressing more outrage? No, seriously. Raise your hand if you think there should be more. Okay. All right. So what I'd like to suggest is that, of course, there's plenty to be outraged about. Believe me, I'm an American. We have a lot to be outraged about. But how do we conduct ourselves, especially in a university or in an office or in any community? How do we conduct ourselves? And what I've begun doing in the United States, and people seem to like it, to recognize we're choking on this. Um, We all are, we're we're encountering 50 times more outrage materials than we did 20 years ago. So I'd like you to repeat after me if you're willing. It's not like a pledge on your honor. It's just, just try it and see how it feels. Um, So, um, so, uh, I'll, I'll just say it, and then you repeat with me. So, I will give less offense. Okay. Uh, well, no, that doesn't work. Okay, wait. Okay, on the count of three, if you're willing to say it. One, two, three. I will give less offense. Okay, so we all have to be more careful. Part of political correctness is politeness. So, I will try to give less offense in this hyperpolarized, angry age. But at the same time... I will try to take less offense. People are so thin-skinned these days, every time you take offense, sometimes you're justified, but often you're just ratcheting up and you're overreacting. So would you make an effort to take less offense? One, two, three, I will take less offense. And finally, think of all the stuff that crosses your email, your Twitter, or Facebook. Um, Would you consider forwarding much less? If we all forwarded only 10% as much, then we would all be only two or three times as outraged as we used to be. So, if you're willing, one, two, three, I will pass on less offense. Okay, just think about it. See? Okay, so if we want our universities to be more like this, um, I think we need to build them more on principles like this, like the wisdom principles. Thank you very much. So can I just first say that I take
0: offence uh, being spelt wrong. Um, it's, a, it's a C, not an S. Um, so that's the first thing. So um, thank you very much, John. You've, um, I, I'm going I'm to talk with you for about ten minutes, I think, because I want to open the floor up quickly to questions, because you've uh, made the effort to come here, so you, you should at least be given the opportunity to have your say. But I just want to start, let me just start with the, um, I think maybe I've got a couple of questions. Um, start with the them and us principle, the, the untruth of them and us. It's really a half-truth, though, isn't it, really? Because we need them and us, don't we? I mean, we need social change by identifying others and being able to to identify people that have more than us, that have opportunity, privilege that we might not have, and to be able to fight them and take them on, don't we? Um,
1: Yes. If I were to say uh, you should never get angry um, and you should never form a group to fight others... Uh, Well, I suppose the Stoics and the Buddhists largely said that. So there are people who say that that would be a better way to go. Um, There certainly are times, and so desegregation in the American South was never going to be accomplished by asking nicely. That had to be a political movement that involved um, not just large-scale protests. Then the big debate was, do we use violence or not? And there's research that suggests that pressure is important, but violence tends to turn people off and you lose a lot. So there, are, there is a time and a place, systems that will not change, that are hostile to you. There is a time and a place for us versus them. I don't think Yale and Middlebury and Berkeley are those places. Um, if you want to reform a place that has been working really, really hard to reform for 30 years... These problems are complicated social science problems. It's very difficult to, 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 to change systems to get the outcome you want. And so to come in and say, here are demands. They're not well thought out. They feel good. Research suggests that they're going to backfire, but damn it, do it anyway. Yeah, yeah I don't think that's very effective.
0: Yeah, okay. Um, I'll, I'll just start, maybe I'll just ask one other one on social, on social media because it's very pertinent to me. I have a 10-year-old daughter who we've managed to keep off social media at infant school. But when she goes to secondary school next year, it will be much harder. It was interesting that one of your recommendations, I think, is to is – to, I'm not sure it's a ban, but to not use no. social media at least until it's 15. It's a norm,
1: I'm suggesting. It's a norm.
0: norm. So the norm – I mean, one way that norms get created is by laws. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, smoking was pretty much recognised and accepted as a social norm. Legislation and regulation came in and said it was harmful and we stopped doing it. We have laws that stop us doing it in certain places. Um, I wonder if we might need the same for social media, which I think we would, but then that leads to an anti-fragile argument, doesn't it? Because we're basically treating people as quite fragile if we think we need to ban things from them. So I'm just kind of interested in that juxtaposition of but how you deal with social media, yeah. essentially.
1: So that's a good example to tobacco. I don't know when the research began coming in. I think it was the 1950s, but certainly by the 1960s. Yeah, we knew by that. Um, we knew by the 60s. And so uh, it was pretty clear that it causes cancer, and then it just took another 20 or... It took, you know, the, the laws banning smoking took a long time to come in. A lot of lives would have been saved if they came in earlier. But it would have been wrong to ban smoking the instant there was one or two or five studies. Yeah. So uh, I think we're at the same stage here. Um, there re- you know, There is some experimental evidence. There's a lot of correlational evidence that this stuff is bad for kids. Um, but And there are a few true experiments, random controlled experiments. But we're not. I cannot say with confidence that this is the cause of depression, that it affects boys. So we're not ready to ban anything. Um, what I'm hoping is that the, uh, the uh, chief medical doctor, whatever that's called in the U.K., and the surgeon general... What I'm hoping is that there will be lit reviews. Three years ago, there was not enough research. Three years from now, I think there will be. So once there's enough research, if it supports what we're saying here, then we'd want authoritative reports about the health consequences. Um, But I think even before then, it's enough for voluntary norms, given that most parents want these restrictions. They don't want their kids on social media especially. That's why I'm suggesting just make it a voluntary norm. We know that girls are cutting themselves and killing themselves maybe we should at least suggest that the, the, the headmaster suggest a norm, and that makes it easier for others to, to do it. Uh, so I think we might get there where we need it. Uh, the anti-fragile point, um, I see your point. Yes, you might say, shouldn't we let them toughen up by being on social media? You know, I mean, I would like my kids to be resistant to heroin addiction, but I'm not going to give them heroin until they're 21, so, or whatever. So, you know. Um, so, no, these things are so addictive there is a role for paternalism and so if these things are designed to addict, to draw people in there's been a lot of coverage recently about how the the, uh, the main tech titans in Silicon Valley, the leaders the people who are creating this stuff the great majority of them will not let their kid have an iPhone, they will not let their kids on these devices, they will not let them have social media, they've been doing this for five or seven years now, they know this is bad, so I think um, there, there's a the millennials were not damaged by it when they get at 18, and I think we're in the same situation. At 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old kids, they're just going to get sucked in, stop playing outside, stop interacting. It's bad for them. Okay, great. Listen, I'm gonna, I've got one
0: question about what the solutions might be, but I think I'll save that till later on. So let me, um, let me take this opportunity to open up to the floor. I'm sure there's loads of hands going up straight away. Um, we have microphones, we have microphones, so could you please wait for the microphone to come to you before you start asking your question, and I'll find a really difficult one for you to start with. So the guy in the middle here. <laughs>
3: uh, hi, I'm Vincent, master student in psychology of economic life here at LSE, um, and I, I think I, I had quite a few debates uh, about this topic uh, recently. Uh, but I think I personally faced the problem that it went very emotional, very fast. And I personally had also the impression that uh, moral standards were applied to topics which are per- maybe not particularly a moral issue. So it was like a hyper emo- emo- emotionalization and uh, moralization. Yeah. And my question is how you think when I speak with people like that, uh, how I can react? Because um, if I would then, for example, say, I don't know, uh, for example, I studied in the first master of sustainability and people were then making the tale of all evil oil men tried to rob the planet, kind of. Um, and then when I would then say, hey, they are also um, just regular persons then they might react similar, you would might do the same in their position. They would be like, no, 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 I would never do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so how do you sure. deal with
1: that? Yeah, so uh, there was a saying in the 60s, the personal is political. And there's a tendency in some political groups to make everything political. Um, that gets really, really tiresome fast. Um, it's difficult to work with people like that often. Um, I think especially in, in businesses, in, in many things we do to cooperate, in a time of rising polarization, I'm hopeful that we'll set more norms, that in certain areas we just don't talk about politics, we don't politicize things. But when it comes up, what I advise you to do um, is start, always start by acknowledging, find something that the person is right about, something that you can agree with, something that um, uh, there's almost always something that they are right about. And so if you start with acknowledgement, because people are expecting a fight, but if you start by validating, and, they, and again, they, there is always something that they're right about or right to be concerned about, start with that. And then by the amazing power of reciprocity, they're likely to at least grant whatever your next point is if you make it in a polite way. So I think politeness and civility and basic human interaction skills will take you a long way, especially in a political minefield.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, Some more hands. Can I please ask people to keep their questions succinct? We've got lots of hands, and I'd like to take as many as possible. Um, Let's go on the end of the row here.
2: Um, I'll try and be succinct. Um, I have done several degrees, uh, four of them at one university, UCL, um, first time I studied, I didn't pay any fees. Last time I did a PhD, I, I got some money for it. But since the rise of fees, I've noticed um, a different mentality around uh, student behaviour. You're talking about fear and people being frightened to say what they think. Yeah. And there have been various instances of people being um, getting into lots of actual trouble or expelled from the university for actually exercising free speech. Um, also, yeah, introduction of things like security guards, which didn't exist when I did, like, first degrees and things like that. How would you... Uh, what would you say about that in terms of, like, introduction of the monetarisation, privatisation of education, which we have recently experiencing after the U.S. in the U.K.? Uh, So
1: we we have a gigantic, we we call it a student debt crisis in that, uh, especially after the financial crisis when states were strapped for money, they pulled back on their investment in public education. (laughs) Um, Students had to take on more debt even if they went to what we call public universities. Um, so that, so people have asked me like couldn't that be a contributor and in theory it could it is a source of stress maybe that's what's doing this a lot of things have been changing together over the last 10 years we don't, it's hard to assess causality but I recently came across um, two reports uh, looking at uh, students in the United States one was what are the things students are going in for counseling for and it used to be depression, anxiety and relationship problems those were used to be the big three and then anxiety has gone way, way, way up um, relationship problems have gone down. And on this long list, uh, financial problems, uh, things like that, is like number 30. Students are not going – it doesn't seem to be causing – I mean, it, it's a problem for sure, but it's not clear that this is driving them to, into states of anxiety or depression. So, um, yes, a lot of things have been happening, but there's no evidence I've found yet this is to put causality on debt. It's, it makes life harder. I'm, I'm, not, I'm sympathetic. It's a huge problem, and American universities are beginning to work on affordability, and that's really the real problem. We do affirmative action of all sorts. The one we most need is for social class, but that's the most expensive kind to do.
0: Okay, let's go to the back. Let's go right to the back. Thank you. Come on, hurry up. <laughs> this is your question time that's being taken up <laughs>
2: Hi, I'm a coddled American mind. Um, I went to undergrad in in the Midwest, but I'm from New York City. And I noticed a lot of my peers from the Midwest had very different experiences growing up than I did. Like, my parents let me take the subway whenever I wanted after, like, 11 or 12. Um, Do you think geographical reasons could play a part in why English universities and students are so different from American universities? Mm -hmm.
1: Yes, like it definitely could. Um, the only uh, of the schools I've spoken at, that demonstration that I did, obviously it failed with you because you're, you're British, but the only place in America where it failed was at Luther College in northeast Iowa. Um, and there they still let their kids out at the age of six or seven. And then as I was amazed, and as I was talking with them, I discovered they don't lock their doors. And someone said, I mean, if you go away for a week, you'll lock your door, but if you're just away <laughs> for one night, like, why would you lock your door? Like, who's going to go in? so they have such high trust now in, in America we've had plummeting social trust in each other and in our social institutions um, so yes, geography and especially trust makes, makes a big difference um, by geography now the mental health crisis does appear to be everywhere but I, but I have not looked for variations, I'd lo- that, I should look at that rural, urban, uh, uh, map it on along with measures of social capital that would be fascinating, I should do that, thanks for the suggestion
0: Okay, let's go over to this side of the room. Um, let's take one on the end here. Hi. Um, there's, a,
3: there's a hypothesis that, that I think you touched on with, um, in an interview with uh, Jordan Peterson a few years ago, um, that there might be something uniquely uh, or sort of archetypally feminine about this particular type of coddling. Um, and I wonder if you, could, if you could comment on that, specifically You know, the, the example of the, the devouring Oedipal mother versus the... The sort of male archetype, which should be the more tyrannical, oppressive archetype, but that's in decline. And as the, the feminist movement has increased over multiple decades, maybe there's something uniquely feminine about this.
1: I assure that, you hypothetically that, speaking, yeah. of course. I assure you those were not my words. Those were Jordan's. <laughs> Um, Yeah, so uh, now now gender is very important here. And in, in my own research on moral foundations theory, I talk about five or six different moral foundations. Care is one of them. It's a very important moral foundation. Um, Women are generally higher on care than men. Uh, And so when we look at how they raise kids, too, women are more likely to want to protect, at least stereotypically, men are more likely to do rough-and-tumble play with their kids. So I think there is a difference. And given that the education realm, and especially in the earlier grades, is much more feminine, Um, so I think there, there are legitimate disagreements about how much to protect, and especially emotional protection. There are gender differences on that. Boys like to tease, and especially with the social class issue too. Boy, so there, there are male and female differences in, in aggression and, um, and how much they think it 's okay to tease or insult or, or even push around. Um, so i haven 't worked that all out yet, but there are interesting gender ramifications i wouldn 't go down to early childhood and Freud to look for them though.
0: Yeah, how much, of, this, how much of, of that in particular, but more generally, is explained by social class differences? Because that's not, it's not really, it's the kind of elephant in the room nearly all yeah. of the time, isn't it, when we talk about disability, race, gender, which are all hugely significant. But class, because we don't have any legislation against class, right. um, you can basically do what you like to working class people, mm. and the law doesn't uphold anything. Um, um, does that does that play into would, yeah. would that would that make you more circumspect know. about some of the things yeah. that you?
1: No, you're right. Explained. So you're right, and uh, right, and that was the great lesson I learned from you when we first met in 2004. Was that was just how blinkered academics are about social class because we're almost all from middle class and above. And you're one of the first working class academics I'd, I'd met, and I learned a lot from that conversation with you. Um, but obviously, I forgot it all because I didn't then. That's Thank you so much. It, it all went out the door, didn't
0: it? All went out the window. <laughs> no, <laughs> but, but
1: for the book, for the book, we did because we do talk a lot about the increasing pressure on kids to get into college, and that is middle class and above it 's not just the top five or ten percent it 's sort of the upper half and above yeah. uh, very college oriented you know, and, and the pressure to get in the competitiveness is increasing, so we were looking for that because like, you 'd know, think because working class kids uh, they 're not as helicoptered, yeah. so you 'd think that they 're better off. Yeah. But what we found is that um, we read uh, two wonderful ethnographies by uh, Robert Putnam and by um, Oh, by our kids, and then the other one is Annette Leroux, uh, Unequal Childhoods, wonderful books. What we learned is that um, there are big class differences in rearing, of course, and it's true that the working-class kids are less coddled. So you'd think that they have a mental health advantage, but they have a huge cost... <laughs> In that they grow up in much more unstable environments, much less likely to have a father present throughout their childhood, much more likely to have men rotating through to see violence, to see domestic violence, to be victims of violence, to be victims of sexual abuse. So they have much more chronic stress, much more likely to have been damaged by adverse childhood experiences. So if you add it all up, what happens is all social classes are experiencing the rise in depression, but it may be for different reasons.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Interesting. Okay, let's have some more hands. At the front here.
2: So I guess when I think about the Internet, there's some good stuff on there as well. Of so, The idea of banning it, I, I'm, I don't particularly like. So I wonder about the role of the education system to teach kids how to navigate the media. And is there anything that's coming out from the U.S. to suggest that these are policies that we should be bringing in, enhancement of source skills along with this navigation?
1: Yes, no, that's a good point. And I should have made that clear. The internet is one of the greatest boons to mankind. The fact that a kid in Pakistan who doesn't have access to a good school can take a course in physics at MIT is amazing. Uh, the fact that we can self diagnose, well, as you, you know, for medical issues all over the world, is a generally good thing, I, I think. Um, so I should have made that clear. The Internet is a wonderful thing. Um, letting kids on the Internet, letting them search, I don't know that that's a bad thing at all. There's a lot of good that comes from it. So there was the Internet 1.0, which was all the world's information is out there, and here's a search engine for you to find it. I don't think much bad happened from that. Then there's the Internet 2.0, which said let's take the connectivity between people and let's increase it not by 5 or 10%, but by 5,000% so that now strangers can send you death threats and you can't do anything about it. Okay, That's where I think things begin to get bad. So overall, the Internet's a boon to humanity. Social media does a lot of good stuff and a lot of bad stuff. As far as I can tell, social media for people over 18 is probably doing more good than bad, other than that, it might make my country and other countries fail and crack up. Other than that, other than that, it does a lot of good stuff. Social media for 11, 12, 13, 14-year-olds, I think, is probably net bad and possibly extremely bad. So I think we have to do age gradations here. The frontal cortex is just not wired up enough to do a lot of self-control. Kids, we evolved to expect kids to do a lot of rough-and-tumble play, a lot of social play, and, and they, I think they need to get it.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. Let's go to the back over this side. Yep. Yeah. That sounds good. good. Hi. Uh, Thanks you for your talk. Uh, two very quick questions. The first one is, to what extent do you feel this good and evil thing is rooted in possibly, like, Christian Christian theology of like the meat shall inherit the earth? And, and secondly, which is a sort of follow-on,
3: on the same subject, the Nietzschean idea of of the slave morality
0: that the uh, you know, resentment between what is good and what is evil.
1: Mm. Right, good questions. <clears throat> um, on, the one, on, the, on the one about good and evil, um, so my view as a social psychologist who studies evolution is that this is part of human nature, and the fact that you find the same admonitions in Buddhist and Hindu uh, teachings suggests that every culture deals with it. It is part of human nature. But I think there is something to monotheistic religions being much more about this good and evil thing, whereas Eastern religions are much more about overcome the good and evil thing, you know, uh, yin-yang. So I do think my general approach is to say there is a human nature, it's a first draft, cultures can play it up or play it down. And what we're seeing on campus is a new moral culture built on our evolved architecture coming into a generation that is more cut off from the wisdom of, of previous generations than any generation in history. We've never had young people so connected to each other and so disconnected from their elders. Uh, but you might be right that this would still play out differently in a, in a, in a G, uh, Christian, Jewish, or Muslim society than in a Hindu or Buddhist society. Great, thank you. Um, should we stay at the back? Do you want to go over, over this side? Right,
0: right at the back? Yeah, Perfect.
2: I was uh, wondering, do you think we are over-diagnosing? Meaning, because diagnosis, of course, is a legitimization of sorrow. And it's good to a certain extent, but to another extent it becomes a label. And people right. take it in very, very easily, I believe, sometimes too easily.
1: Yeah. Yes. I, well, so yes and no. Um, I was very open to the possibility that this is just too much labeling and there's not a real problem underneath it. And that's because I didn't know in 2015. We didn't know. But now that we've seen the self-harm stats and the suicide stats, we know that there is a real rise, and it kind of parallels the rise in diagnosis. But I think what you might be referring to is there is also a thing called concept creep. So uh, this generation, like, like the millennials, too, were very heavily medicated and raised with a lot of psychotherapy. And so they tend to have concept creep about what is trauma, for example. And so recently somebody wrote an article in an education journal about for survivors of math trauma. Okay, Now, I understand that many people are anxious about math. There are people actually have panic attacks because I'm sympathetic to that. I'm not denying that. But now to give them the helpful label that you are a survivor of math trauma, that's a really bad idea. Yes, we don't want to encourage people to label themselves as ill or sick or incapable unless, we, unless it's really helpful and necessary medically. Yes. Thank you. Let's go to the front here. Sorry. Hi. Uh, thank you for this talk. Um, I'm a student here, and I was wondering, you focused a lot on the role of students in all this. How do you view um, the role of professors, perhaps, mm. um, in this phenomenon? Thank you. No, you're right. Good question. Um, in, the, in the book, we go into that in much more detail. Um, the professoriate in the United States and in Britain has leaned left for a very long time. You know, artists lean left, construction workers lean right. I mean, so there's... Uh, occupations have a different lean. That's no problem. Um, the crucial thing is that there be at least some diversity so that ideas will be challenged. What happened in the United States is from the 90s to about 2010, we went from two to one left right to five to one left right, but that's including all disciplines like the dental school and the agriculture school. If you look at you know, English, history, philosophy, those fields, um, it's closer to 20 or 30 to one. So the professoriate is so far to the left in most of these central departments that there is very little diversity of opinion. Now it varies a huge amount. Is that a problem? I think it's a problem for finding truth. Is it a problem for indoctrinating students? Two pieces of evidence that are important. One, there's not a lot of evidence that even leftist professors, you know, if it's all leftist there's not a lot of evidence that they actually change the politics of the students. Students are much more influenced by each other. Um, also, it varies hugely across disciplines. So we have an essay at Heterodox Academy, an organization I started for for professors who believe there should be more viewpoint diversity. Um, We have an essay from a a black undergraduate at Columbia University on two philosophy classes he took. One was a a more traditional philosophy class, one was a feminist philosophy class. And he describes the orthodoxy, the conformity, the punishment for dissent in the feminist philosophy class, whereas in the other class, he could argue, you would debate, he'd encourage. So I think the faculty do play a role, but this recent wave of... this new culture is not driven by the faculty at all. It really is driven from within the students, as far as we can tell. Now, there's also the administrators. There's new research suggesting that the administrators lean even further to the left than do the faculty, and the administrator growth is enormous on American universities, in part because of the need for more protection, care, legislate, all sorts of things. Um, so, they're a piece of the puzzle that we only suggest, we hinted at in chapter ten of the book, but there's a lot more to be said about that.
0: So, you, so you're saying that that is driven part partly, in large part, by the student demand for that ideology?
1: Uh, It's the safe... No, it's not the student demand for the ideology. The students brought in the the, um, therapeutic aspect that speech isn't right or wrong, it's safe or dangerous. Because so even though the faculty lean left quite strongly, they're overwhelmingly what you might call liberal left. That is, they believe in free speech. So whether you're on the left or the right, if you're over 40, you generally believe in free speech and open inquiry and that students should be able to speak up and argue. Um, so it really, is, uh, it, it really is a generational divide on safetyism.
0: So I wonder how much you think this is a pendulum swinging, mm. right? So Zero. if we leave it another generation, we'll be back to where we were.
1: Yeah, I, you know, one should always look at that. And there is interesting research that if you show Westerners a bunch of trend lines and say, what's going to happen, they keep them going. If you show East, East Asians a bunch of trends, lines, they say, well, it goes up, it'll go down, it'll go up, it'll go down. So, so we should definitely look at that. Um, we we cover a lot of causes of the change, and most of them are irreversible. So a big one is the decline of family size. When when each family had four or five kids, there were a lot of kids out there to play with, and you couldn't helicopter them all. Um, In fact, in the United States, women now have many fewer children, and they're more likely to work, and yet they spend more time with their kids than they did in the 50s. So I think we are having fewer kids and overprotecting them, for because we've changed our ideas about about kids' fragility, political polarization is not going to reverse. Social media is not likely to reverse, but I think we're going to be able to. any basis on back. which that's, you know that to be true. What polarization? Yeah, I mean that's a whole. That's other, I have a lot of writing on that. I have an essay listing ten causes of our rising polarization in the United States, and about seven or eight of them are irreversible. One is increasing education. The more educated we are, the more we care about symbolic politics, the more we get angry about political stuff. That's not going to reverse. I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons why in America, and most of them apply in Britain, that the late 20th century was a historically unusual period when all the the centripetal forces pulling us in were strong and the centrifugal forces were weaker, and we were deluded into thinking that democracy is easy and it's the final endpoint of political evolution. That's what we thought in the 90s. Now we know we were wrong. Okay, thank you. Wow. <laughs> this, is an,
0: this is an impossible challenge. Um, let's go in the middle here since I saw this hand first. Uh, hi. Um, I'm an ex-University um, of Sussex student, and I was on the tail end of sort of the millennial cohort. So when I was studying, I saw sort of the beginnings, as it were, of sort of this sort of behavior that you've been discussing. What year did you graduate? I graduated in 2015. So 2014. Yeah. 2015. I did a master's as well, so I was there for four years. So I saw sort saw, of saw the beginnings and saw it, was semi-exposed to it as well. But um, my question is, what can be done? We've talked about what can be done with sort of children who are growing up now. What can be done to those that have already been through the system and will then be going into the world of work with these ideas? Because at that point, they're adults, and they're going to be going into the world of work with these views, and, well, they're independent. So is there any way that they they can be helped? or what can be done? Yeah.
1: Well, so there certainly is the mental illness issue, and so, uh, you know, I think CBT is helpful. Um, There's a, a, a... <clears throat> but there's, there is, uh, just in the last year, because the, the, first, the, the oldest members of Gen Z just graduated in 2016, or uh, 17, it's 2017. So they've only been in the work world in America for one year. And already we're seeing reports in, in human resources magazines and trade publications about rising anxiety in the workplace from young workers. We're seeing demands for changes in safe spaces. They seem to go to human resources much more often. So if they overhear a joke that they don't like, they don't say, hey, cut it out, or they don't just look the other way, they go to HR and file a complaint. So um, again, we're, we're humorless, you know, Just it's, it's yeah. Um, um, what can be done? I think the most important thing is there has to be clear norm setting in each institution because most students are fine. Most young people want to learn, they want to work, but there's a minority, there's a small group that bring these safetyism norms mm-hmm. in. It's very important. And in certain colleges, they, were, they could do it, and the school went that way, and that became the culture. But humans can shift cultures. And so I'm not saying that the boss has to say, suck it up, you work for me now, tough it out. I'm not saying that. I'm saying... You have, to, you have to set norms and then justify them for the benefit of all. Like, how are we going to get along here? Yes, you know, we're a diverse workforce. People are going to say things you don't like. What, what are we going to do about that? So I think the leader of every organization, what I'm hearing in the United States is, you know, it's always been hard to lead a complicated organization. Now many are saying it's impossible. In the last two or three years, it's become impossible um, because of all these, the complaints and the thin skin and the, the anger. Um, so, I think it's crucial to set new norms and recognize that, again, most young people are mentally healthy and want to cooperate, want to work. So, uh, it's, it, we just have to set, set good norms.
0: Brilliant, thank you. <coughs> okay, let's go in the middle. Shall we go in the middle? Need to where you are?
2: Hi. Um, So you talked a lot about this kind of new political culture, but um, when you brought up the data on mental health, one of the things that, like, was suggested was that it has more to do, like, with the lifestyle of, like, social media being in every part of our lives. And I was wondering, you know, how do we establish the kind of causal link between this new sort of politics and the the kind of mental health epidemic you were talking about?
1: Yeah. So so what I'm finding... um, In the United States is that the mental health problems are everywhere. Um, Across the country, in the Midwest, in the South, there are rising rates of depression and anxiety, and it's especially girls, and that's true across countries. That's everywhere. Um, But does that get turned into a political movement of safetyism? That's mostly at the elite schools in the Northeast and the West Coast. Um, It's not happening at most schools in the United States. We have 4,200 institutions of higher education. Most of them are not not four-year competitive residential schools. The politicization only takes place if you have young people together for four years, not going home to see their parents at night or on the weekends. It's a closed community um, in a very progressive part of the country. Then it gets politicized. So at most American schools, the safe space stuff, the politicization, the shout-downs are simply not happening. But We have a map at Hedrox Academy. We made a map of where the actual shout-downs, like stopping a talk from going ahead, it's all in the northeast, it's right along the west coast, and then there are two in Chicago.
0: Yeah, should we come to the front again, in the middle
1: here? Hi. First of all, thank you. Um, and I would love to receive such big lunch bags as you do. Um, such big what? To receive such big lunch bags as you do from your daughter. Um, my question is, um, we, we are talking about children spending too much time on their smartphones, but what about the parents? Yes. Right? So I see so many parents actually don't teaching their children to go outside and play with physics <clears throat> physics, and get hit by a stone or whatsoever. So my dad actually told me, like, hey, what doesn't kill you make you stronger. We don't have these situations so often in this society anymore because parents actually spend too much time on the phone and don't even care what the yeah. child is doing. No, I think that's right. We draw a lot on... Um um, in our book on Erica Christakis, who's a developmental psychologist, she's actually the woman who sent the email at Yale saying, "Hey, wait a second. Yale shouldn't be telling you what to wear for Halloween. You know, you're you're your college students. You should be able to do this yourselves." That's what ignited the protest. Her email, and and she sent the email because she's so worried about the overprotection. Um, And she has pointed out to me, she said exactly that, that it's hard for us to tell our kids to stay off when we're always on. And she says, we have actually the worst of all worlds, which is we're spending too much time with our kids. That is, we are hovering, we're there too much, but when we're with them, we're usually on our device. And she says, spend less time with your kids, but put down the device. And I think that's good advice.
0: I think we've seen um, in the UK um, accidents amongst children of all ages has fallen pretty much, you know, forever, right. except in the under fives now, where it's um, I think it's gone up.
1: What? And I'm the suggestion
0: go up? is well, because that you're oh. on your phone, <laughs> you know, crossing the road, and your right. kids already <laughs> okay. and got knocked down.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Okay, I would I would believe that.
0: Um, okay, let's go. Uh, let's go. Let's go in the middle.
1: Yeah. Actually, are, is there any, wait, Is there anybody who has some pushback or some real criticism? Yeah, that's if a good idea. I like that. Yeah, let's, I like that. Go, this is a real,
0: the real irony of, uh, of 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 this. Now that everyone's agreeing with you, let's create a safe space. Yeah, let's, get, yeah. let's create a safe space okay, for disagreement. Uh, right. So I wanted to comment on the fact that you um
2: you talk a lot about um political polarisation, right? Um, but you seem to be focusing a lot on what's happening on the left. Mm-hmm. So the call out culture and the, um, etcetera, they're mostly phenomena on the left. Mm-hmm. So do you think that you might be contributed? Contributing to
3: political polarization by focusing so much on the left, and not necessarily—well, your your audience being leaning more right-wing, right? right. So not my, what, challenging My them, audience is what?
1: Leaning more to the like being my audience? What do you mean? I I don't know. Like the people who usually listen to you. you mean the people I write for. I suppose, yeah. Okay, so uh, so we're very clear in the book. We have a whole chapter on the polarization cycle. And in the United States right now, we have a far right that includes actual Nazis. I never thought I would see this. I'm Jewish. Uh, I love my country. My country is the best country in the world for Jews. It is not an anti-Semitic country. But yet we have actual Nazis on the right. We have a whole chapter on the polarization cycle. Each side is, is driven to, is, it welcomes outrages from the other side because that lets them get more and more angry. So, if you really want to strengthen the right, do this stuff on campus and have videos of students screaming F you right at their professor's face. That's a really good way to really ramp up anger and, and passion on the right. Um, the reason why we focus much more on the left is because on campus there is no right the right is just not there, it's not relevant Um, now now there is far right and alt right trolling but that only really began in 2016 this whole thing is, is a division within the left, most of the left as I said is liberal left, not illiberal at all most of my colleagues believe in free speech It's only in a few departments where these ideas are more dominant. Uh, But most professors and most university presidents are true liberals, Uh, and and they're great. I mean, this is not – I would never say, oh, the universities have gone crazy and the professors are – I would never say that um, because it's just not true. Um, But I think this is a problem. It's a debate among the left, and I think certain branches of the left have seized upon certain ideas – for a political agenda, which I believe is harmful to the very people they're trying to help. So yes, I am pushing back against the left. I mean, sure, I could push back against the right, but I have no access to them or influence there. I'm on campus. I see dynamics going haywire on campus. I want to improve life on campus, and that means I'm talking to the left.
0: Okay, we've got time for a couple- Critics, fine critics. Oh, yeah, critics. Only critics. Only critics. critics. Only critics. That's a big hand. This is a okay. big critic.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Um, I wonder oh, if... I was actually
0: saying your hands are big, by the way. I was just saying... <laughs> that would be, be my clear, just so you don't. Take I, don't I take of that, no so take
2: offense. <laughs> 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 um, I wonder if your argument relies on the idea that uh, Gen.I. are operating entirely under false consciousness politically. Uh, do you think there's any room to meet them halfway or... Uh, is there something about their political demands that they misarticulate that we should give credit to? What do you mean
1: false consciousness right here? In this uh,
2: a lot of Gen I's demands on campus are political in nature and your diagnosis is psychological in nature. Um, do you think that their political demands oh, are misexpressed uh, or, or sh- is, should, we give, um, should we meet them halfway? In
1: I opinion? see. No, no, I, I don't think they're being insincere at all. Um, the, the mental health thing is just is, is an is, is a, is a, so there's a new ideology. It is a sincere ideology. They believe what they believe. They want the reforms they want. I'm not saying there's anything false about that, but why did why did some students suddenly start treating words and books not as right or wrong or even as outrageous, but as safe and dangerous? Why did ideas of emotional safety? and emotional danger come onto campus in 2014, 2015. That, I believe, is in part because we had more students who actually suffered from anxiety disorders. And there's research that I just... It's not in the book, so I just found it. When people are anxious, people suffered from anxiety and depression, they interpret things much more negatively. They see more threat, and they're much more inflexible. It's very hard to take them off of that. So those who see d- discrimination, racism, sexism everywhere, that is a real political demand... I think that they are incorrect in their diagnosis. There is racism and sexism, but to say, as some do, every institution is racist and sexist, every university is, you know, so you you have a lot of this idea of these matrices of oppression, that everything is and always will be racist and sexist. I think that's just an incorrect diagnosis of what universities are and what many other institutions are. So I do think that they are factually wrong in their claims, but I think they're sincere. I would never say false consciousness. Okay, one
0: more. One more very hostile question. <laughs> Only keep your hand up if you are going you to be me. succinct and hostile. <laughs> okay, keep your hand up. Well, there you go, right next to you.
2: Okay, did you find any evidence that you omitted from your book that actually contradicted in any way what you've spoken about this evening?
0: Okay. Is there, yeah. Good. Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Okay. Um, So you're asking, am I suffering from confirmation bias? Um, And so I would have to plead, yes, I am guilty of being human and suffering from confirmation bias. And so what I did um, uh, was I gave it to friends who I thought would be critical, and one of my research assistants, who's now a, a research partner, Caroline Mell, offered to find uh, some social justice activists to read it. So I paid them money. I paid about seven or eight people money to read it and tell me what what we got wrong, what's offensive, what's badly stated. So my general view, and what guides a lot of my work, is that we all suffer from confirmation bias. The only cure for confirmation bias is other people who disagree with us, and so you want to seek out your critics. And that's why I often do that. I often ask. I I want people who who disagree, who challenge me, because that's the only way I'll get smarter. Um, So... um, I think we try to be very honest in the book, and sometimes we don't go into the complexities in the text, but we do note them in the footnotes, so I urge people to read the footnotes, and I'm very pleased that some people, like on Twitter, say that it's, it's great that we steel-manned people. It's a new term I didn't know, but to straw-man is you give the worst possible reading, but you'll see in the book, we often, if we say something about a student to man, we often go out of way to say, now, of course... There's something that they're right about, or it wasn't just about the... You know, so we really do try to be respectful and to assume, you know, as in all of my work, people are morally motivated. This is, this is not a battle of good people and evil people. This is a social science detective story. How can we have better universities with lower rates of depression, anxiety, and, and conflict across groups?
0: Brilliant. Thank you. That's a fantastic point on which to finish. Um, I'd like to thank you, John, very much. Thank you thank
1: very you, much. Paul. Um, I haven't finished yet.